good. All right, grab your seat. Okay. I want to. Uh, I want. I want to get started. I want to get started uh, by praying for us before we dig in a little bit, and then we'll then we'll open it up and go for it. Dear God, we thank you as always for your word, and uh, we thank you for your church, um, for fellow brothers and sisters that we can sit in a room and and um, learn about your word from. Um, God, I pray that this year that we would be shaped by the book of Hebrews, that you would shape not just our minds, but our hearts, um, that you would form us into the image of your son by giving us a greater ability to um, to enjoy him and to, to worship him and to love him, and that, yeah, that, that the spirit would use that to make us more like him, and that you would receive all the glory from that. And we ask you this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, let me make sure we're recording here. Sweet. Okay, Book of Hebrews, okay? We finished up kind of our gospel intro stuff for the first few weeks. From here on out, we'll be walking through this book together. We're going to get a little bit into it tonight, all right? Um, about four verses into it, but not too far. Before we do that, I want to, uh, basically, we need to lay some groundwork, all right, to do some of these things. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time kind of laying the foundation, um, doing our background work on the book of Hebrews. And there are going to be some of you in here who are going to love this kind of stuff. Um, you're going to love the idea of, of uh, uh, kind of exploring all the background details and stuff. And there are going to be some of you, it's just not going to be your thing quite as much. But I really do believe that this is a necessary um, aspect of it, that, that for us to be able to fully understand what's going on in a book like this, we need to do our best to understand as much as we can of the, the context and the details and the situation and the purpose of that letter. And so that's what we're going to do here for the first half just a little bit. Now, this is kind of the unfortunate side to this. I just said we need to do as much as we can to understand all the stuff surrounding it, background and author and purpose and audience and all those things. Um, the bummer when it comes to the book of Hebrews is there is probably no book in the New Testament that is more um, that there are more question marks to than there is the book of Hebrews. That is, we don't know in the book of Hebrews a lot of the information that we kind of know about other books. Um, here's one of the major reasons why, because um, the letter to the Hebrews is not so much a letter as much as it is a sermon. Okay, And so, so you don't have a lot of the formal features that you have in a normal New Testament letter, which would start with this. I, Paul, uh, write to you to, to the brothers and sisters in Rome or to God's holy people in Colossae. I, James, write to the 12 tribes. You don't have that in Hebrews. They just, whoever it is, just jumps right into their sermon. Okay? And so you, you don't get the formal um, from me to you. You don't get talking about where it's coming from. You don't get a lot of those things. And so um, the, the book of Hebrews has historically been one of the biggest mysteries in the New Testament as to where it comes down to. And, and a lot of that we see mostly when it comes to the author. Okay? Um, the book of Hebrews is the one New Testament book in which we just don't know who the author is. The only one of the 27 that we're really, we really just have to say we're not sure exactly it is. Now there are a few options, okay? The first option that we have is 
Uh, the most obvious, and that would be Paul, right? He wrote most of the epistles. Most of our New Testament kind of comes back to him. And so historically, this has been the most popular option is that the apostle Paul wrote this one. Um, we know this, that he would have, um, he would have the knowledge okay, to write a book like this. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what this book is like, but he would he would know his way around this and be able to write about these things. Um, we, we know this, that the style, though, this is one of the major arguments against it, is the style and the content and the language itself differs dramatically from Paul's letters, okay? Now, normally, actually, for me, that's not that big a deal um, because, uh, as I said, I believe this is more of a sermon than a letter, so because the genre is different, I wouldn't be surprised if Paul would want to use different language because Paul is dealing with almost completely different issues and a completely different content in this writing or, or because the writer is, I wouldn't be surprised that he might use different language and use different vocabulary. Um, so, so that one doesn't get me as much, but there are a couple other things that kind of come into this. Um, I will say this, by the way, the, the language of Hebrews is like the highest level that we have in the New Testament. Okay? It's the most formal, the most artistic, the most fancy. Um, the closest to it, the only other book that matches it in, in Greek, in the style of the Greek, um, or the only other writer that matches it, I should say, because he has two books, is Luke. And so there's some people who think maybe Luke wrote it, or, or maybe Luke was writing, kind of paraphrasing Paul's teachings. Here's, though, why I don't think that Paul probably wrote Actually, I said, yeah, I, I think I can say um, that I don't believe Paul wrote it. Um, the kicker is in Hebrews 2.3. The, the, the language does vary sharply from Paul's. The style does vary sharply from Paul's. The content does vary sharply from Paul's. And, and all of those need to be considered. But the biggest thing I get is in Hebrews 2.3 when he says this. Um, how should we escape if we ignore so great a salvation, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Okay. Now, this, this, this seems to be in opposition to the statements that Paul makes in other places. Namely, and you can write this down, Galatians 1, 11 through 16. Galatians 1, 11 through 16 is where Paul is defending his ministry and one of the big things he says is, I did not get this gospel from any man, okay? Nobody showed up and taught it to me. The way you can know it's true is that it matched up with the apostles, but none of them told me I got it from Jesus himself, okay? So Paul says, makes it really clear in Galatians, nobody told me Jesus is the one who told me, okay? And then here in the book of Hebrews, this writer says, um, we didn't hear Jesus, but Jesus, we got to hear those people who heard him first. They confirmed it to us. And so this writer sounds like what we might call a second-generation Christian, where someone who didn't actually witness Jesus firsthand, they heard about him from somebody else, and that's the biggest argument against Paul. Another option, as I mentioned, that might be the writer is Luke, okay? And there's some who seriously hold to that. Uh, my big thing w with it not being Luke is the fact that Luke is the one that we know of Gentile writer in all of the Bible. And this is a very Jewish-oriented New Testament book. Um, uh, some people like to say Priscilla and Aquila. Okay, you guys remember them from, from Acts. Um, they helped teach Apollos and stuff. And some people with kind of the emphasis on Priscilla, I think they mostly like that because it's kind of cool to think that maybe there was a girl who wrote it. 
um, who wrote this thing. And so there's kind of an emphasis on that. We know them to be knowledgeable about the word, which Hebrews uses a lot of scripture. Okay. Um, but I, I just don't quite buy that. One reason is because the only time the writer uses like um, the personal pronoun to describe themselves, they use the masculine. Okay. Um, and so um, to talk about themselves as a guy when they're actually a girl is a little awkward or weird. Um, another option that gets thrown out is Barnabas. Um, another one, the first record we have mentioned of it is around is by the reformer Martin Luther, and he suggests and actually strongly seemed to strongly believe that Apollos was the writer of, of Hebrews. And, and if you remember anything from Acts or even a little bit of talk about him from 1 Corinthians, it might kind of make sense. Acts 18 describes Apollos as a Jew from Alexandria who was educated, says he was well-learned is what Acts 18 says, and he was knowledgeable in the scriptures and he was a gifted communicator, okay? Whoever wrote the book of authors, uh, uh, whoever was authored, okay, the book of Hebrews, um, was a skilled communicator, knowledgeable in the scripture, most likely a Jewish Christian using the, or using the vocabulary and the preaching style of Alexandria, okay? And so all of those things match up with Apollos. And so I kind of like that idea of possibly him, but the bottom line is we just don't know exactly who wrote this. So under author, you can put question mark. Um, the audience, who is it that he wrote this to? Um, there is no, actually, just, just like we have no explicit mention of the author, he doesn't say I'm writing to so-and-so, we don't know, but actually we, we can take a better guess with this one because the content of the, of the letter, of the sermon itself, tends to tell us a, part, uh, a lot. The entire book, okay, is basically a discussion of how Jesus fits with the Jewish faith. Jesus' relationship to the Jewish faith, all right? Um, so much of the focus is on that. It is filled with Old Testament scripture, okay? Filled with, um, with the Hebrew scripture of all that time. In fact, there is no book in the New Testament that has more overt Old Testament references, okay, than, um, than the book of Hebrews. Uh, only other book that rivals it in, in, in using the Old Testament. Can anybody take a guess? Revelation is the only other book that rivals it, which I think a lot of people would never guess. Um, but, but Revelation has a lot more allusion. In other words, kind of using imagery or concepts from the Old Testament, Hebrews quotes directly from the Old Testament a lot. So um, because there is so much talk about the Jewish faith, and, and what, do we, what, what should we do with the Jewish faith and with Jesus together? And because there's so much quoting of Old Testament scripture to back it up and so much assumption that the audience knows it, we believe this to be a Jewish audience that he's writing to. Okay? Not just a Jewish audience, um, but Jewish, Jewish background, I should say. There may be some Gentiles who kind of had some belief in the Jewish God, but not just that, but Jewish background Christians. All right? Um, so... Um, those who had at one point in their life who, who spent much of their life going to the synagogue and studying the scriptures and, and reading those things and learning those things and following Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. But then somehow at some point they became convinced that all of their scriptures, that the Messiah that had been talked about was Jesus himself. And so they followed through with their Jewish faith into Christianity. And that seems to be these people. But here, here's something else we note. Every quote... Okay, from the Old Testament here is based out of the Septuagint, which is what? 
the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint, okay, if you ever hear that, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Why in the world did there have to be a Greek version of the Jewish scriptures? Okay, I'm hearing mumbled answers, but... Okay. There are actually, there are actually some who spoke, there are actually some people who spoke Hebrew and could understand it, or Aramaic or some form of it, those in the Palestine area, right? But primarily, uh, most of the world couldn't understand, uh, most of the world was speaking Greek at that time, which again, wouldn't be a huge problem because most of the world didn't care about the Jewish faith, except for you have what's called the diaspora, which is all these Jews that were scattered all over the world. Um, and much of them had lived apart from Palestine for so long that they no longer spoke um, the language. They needed a Greek New Testament or a Greek Old Testament to be able to understand those things. And so for this reason, because it's quoting from that and because some of the concepts are actually um, kind of uh, Greek Jewish oriented, if you will, um, we believe this to, to be like a, a, a Greek version or, a, or a, what we might call Hellenized, Greek influenced Jews who were receiving this stuff. Um, they're not Jews, I don't think. They're not, they don't happen to be like Jews located in Palestine, in the area of Israel. Um, so here's the question, where did it go to? Um, where were these people based out of? And our best guess at a destination is Rome. Okay, and here's why. Here's, here, and again, we don't know. I believe um, there's good, good reason to believe that it was Rome. And this is why we know that there's a really strong Jewish population in the city of Rome. About... 50,000 Jews living in the city of Rome at that time. Um, so, so we know that there's a bunch of them. Acts 2.10, what happens in Acts 2? Okay, Pentecost where um, Peter and the rest of the people get up and preach. And in that, Luke begins to list up all the different Jewish people from all the different regions. And one of the things it says is that, that there were Jews from Rome there. And so there's a good chance that those Jews from Rome heard the gospel there and took it back to their people in Rome, that that may have been the first starting of the gospel there. Here's another kind of interesting reason. Hebrews is the only New Testament document we have that refers to the elders of the church as leaders and not elders or overseers, okay? Um, the reason that is significant is because we have two letters from around this same period, not biblical letters. One was called uh, First Clement, okay, or Clement I, and, and the Shepherd of Hermes, okay? Both of those um, have association with Rome, and both of those refer to the elders as leaders, not overseers or elders. It seems like Rome may have been the only place in which the term elders wasn't used for some time. Instead, leaders was, and Hebrews uses that term leaders. Um, finally, okay, at the very end of the book, in, in Hebrews 13, 24, he'll say this, those from Italy send their greetings. Okay, those from Italy send their greetings. Now, there are two different ways that you could say those from Italy, right? I could be writing, say, to, to, to Dallas. Okay, I could be writing to Texas. How many of you guys from the Dallas area? Fort Worth, something, whatever, uh, whatever. Um, okay, so I could, be writing, I could be writing to there and say, hey, those from Oklahoma, right, all of us here in Stillwater, we send our greetings to you. Or I could be writing to those people in Dallas and say, hey, all your buddies from Dallas, all your buddies from Texas, those from Texas send their greetings back to you. Most commentators think that that's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, all of those that are from Italy are sending their greetings back to all of you people in Italy, all of you people in Rome. One of the reasons they believe that is the only other time we see that phrase from Italy used is when it's describing people who just got kicked out of Rome, okay? 
Um, in 49, the Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. All right? And then and seven, six, seven years later, they were allowed kind of back in after he died. But, um, but so, so for that reason, most people think this is actually writing from somewhere to Rome. Um, let me give you for a second the dates. Um, when was this written? And, and I think this is significant. I'm going to place this in the mid-60s for a couple reasons. I would say 64-65 A.D. or A.D. 64-65. First of all, it's, um, we know that it had to be in the first century. There are a number of scholars. One of the major arguments you will hear against the scriptures and against our belief in Jesus as the Messiah and all that he is, um, what one of the most common arguments against Christianity is that the New Testament was not written until like hundreds of years later. Um, that basically what happened is you had stories about Jesus that got passed on over time, and over time the stories grew and got bigger and bigger and bigger and more miraculous and more crazy. And then, you know, in like the second or third century, some people say it's that late, usually second century, then that's when the church started writing these things down. I don't believe that's the case with any of the, the documents in the New Testament. We have reason for all of them to believe that that's not the case. But with the book of Hebrews specifically, this book gets quoted, um, like in, in some places verbatim, by Clement, who was a first century writer. He wrote at the end of the first century. So we know it was written before him. All right. Um, another thing we see is um, that, that they talk like, a, like I said, the, the writer talks like a second generation Christian. Okay, that those who saw Jesus, they confirmed it to us. That means it could not have been that far from the time of Christ. Um, but here's kind of one of the big ones for me. One of the major points you'll see in the book of Hebrews is a comparison of Jesus' priesthood to the priesthood of the Old Covenant. Okay? And the sacrifices that Jesus offers compared to the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament temple. Okay, that's a big one. He'll talk about how Jesus' sacrifice is so much better than the sacrifices in the temple. And his priesthood is so much better than the high priesthood that takes place in the temple. Now, there was a huge event, cataclysmic, that took place in A.D. 70. What was it? The destruction of the, Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish temple. Okay, that's huge, a major point in history. The destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And I contend this, that... Um, that the writer, if he was writing after AD 70, would have an incredible argument to support his case. When he says, hey, just so you know, Jesus' priesthood is so much better than that temple priesthood. His sacrifice is so much better than that, that temple sacrifice. A really great argument to make at that point is, and by the way, the temple's not there anymore, right? Like that'd have been a really great argument. One reason Jesus' sacrifice is better than temple sacrifice is because temple sacrifice doesn't exist. Okay, um, but he doesn't ever say that, and and not only that, he actually writes in several places. He writes as though the sacrifices are still going on to this day. He says, and so for that reason, I have to believe um, that this was written before A.D. seventy. Um, and and the reason I say mid sixties is because as we read, you'll start to discover that there seems to be some mounting persecution taking place on the Christians at this time. The first. Um, somewhat, if you want to say, somewhat systematic persecution of Christians that broke out in the empire um, took place in Rome. And it wasn't empire-wide. It was mostly just in Rome. And it was under what emperor? Nero. Nero, okay? That took place in 65 AD. Okay, 65 AD, that starts. 
And, and so because persecution seems to be pushing but not fully there yet when Hebrews is written, that's why we guess 64 to early 65 um, um, for our date. Purpose, all right? Why was the book of Hebrews written? Um, as I said earlier, you have these Jewish background believers who have studied the Old Testament all their life. They've studied the Hebrew scriptures. And one day, somebody came and shared the gospel with them. And whether, whether it was somebody who went to Pentecost or someone from there, somebody shared it with them. And they came, um, came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for all these years. And so they give their life to him. And there's, you, you can imagine this incredible amount of joy and, and happiness when, when everything you've looked for and everything your people has waited for for so long seems like maybe it, it actually finally happened. The Messiah has come and my whole faith has been pointing to this up until this point. And I finally found it. And so they go and they give their life to Christ. And, and you can imagine there would be some incredible joy in that. But that joy, um, not that it wouldn't last, just that it would soon be countered by a lot of discouragement. Because as soon as, as a Jew, as soon as you claim Jesus as the Christ, you are immediately considered a heretic. And so your, your family immediately disowns you. And, 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 and a lot of people would lose during this time family. They would lose their community. That is, they would no longer, they would be expelled from the synagogue. They would no longer be allowed to go sit and listen to the word of God taught. They would no longer be allowed to hang out with their friends. Many of the Jewish traditions, which were incredibly meaningful to them all their lives, they would no longer allowed to be a part of. And if they were like most people of that time in that their trade came from their family, they would also lose their business when they lost their family. And so many of them had um, no more family, no more friends, no more tradition, no more chance to sit and hear the Torah, preached in the synagogue, no more job, and, and very few of them, or many of them started to have less and less money as a result. Some of them, the writer of Hebrews will say, had been thrown in prison. It doesn't seem like any of them had yet lost their lives at this point, but, but pressure was mounting and persecution begins to mount. And the question that is being asked by the people who are getting this letter to them for the very first time, the question that they're asking over and over again is, is this worth it? Like is, it, is it, like, is following Jesus going to be worth it? Did I make the right choice when I did those things? And, and, and what they're wondering is if they should go back on that. Okay, but, but it's important for us to kind of recognize this, all right? Um, they are not talking about, okay, so for all their lives, okay, they had been worshiping Yahweh, all right? And, and the way that they came to Yahweh was through Okay, as far as they were concerned, was through the law. Right? I have no idea if this is, I, I pictured this thing in my head. I'm hoping it kind of works. Um, so the, the way that they had come um, through uh, to Yahweh was through, through the Old Testament, through the law. That was their understanding. And then at one point they come to this realization um, that Jesus is actually the fulfillment okay, of the law. All right? See, that kind of works, huh? Real fancy, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, thank you. I mean, yeah. Okay, so, anyway, so they come to this, this realization that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Now, let me say this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That is a loaded statement, okay? That is a packed statement, and it probably means a whole lot more than you think it means, 
And we're going to get to explore that a little bit as, as we dig into this book this year. But here's the problem. As soon as they accept this, they lose everything. And life goes downhill in so many ways. Life gets hard and they're lonely and they're tired. And we're going to kind of look at what that may have looked like in just a second. And so the question is, the question is, can I, is there any, they're not asking, can I give up on God? Okay, they're not asking like a lot of Christians would today who are maybe tired of church or struggling or wrestling or getting lackadaisical in their spirituality. Can I just kind of step away from God? That's not what they want to do. They're asking, can I get to Yahweh any other way? Like, can I, can I, can I step away from the Jesus thing and get my family back? Can I, can I do it without Jesus and get my job back and get my livelihood back and get my community and my traditions back? Is there any way that I can go back to a life that doesn't suck and still get God? Can I do it without Jesus? And, and the, the writer of Hebrews, the, the point he makes over and over again, the reason he writes is a resounding no. Okay? That there is no other way to God except through Christ. And, and he's worth it. He's worth all the, all the trouble that you go through and all the struggles and all the difficulty that you're facing. Now, here's how he does this. Let me lay out what the writer of Hebrews could have done. What the preacher who's preaching this sermon could have done is he could have just um, written this thing and just said over and over again, don't give up, persevere, keep going, which is a great, persevere is a great word kind of to sum up somewhat of Hebrews, persevere in the day. He could have said, persevere, and if you don't, judgment is coming, okay? Persevere because, because that's the right thing to do. Keep going because, because um, you don't want to miss out on God. He could have said all these things, and he does actually. He, he warns them of judgment if they walk away. He tells them that's the right thing to do to keep going, but that's not all he does. And this is what makes Hebrews so awesome. His main method of coming after them is not just to yell at them, and it's not just to warn them of impending judgment, and it's not just to say, hey, you really, 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 really need to try harder and do this. The, the main thing that the writer of Hebrews does in his, in his argument is just hold out Jesus. What he does over and over again is he, he, he holds out Jesus and shows how incredible he is, how much better he is than anything they ever knew before, how he is the greatest fulfillment of everything that they ever looked for and hoped to. And what he does is he'll sprinkle in exposition about Jesus with exhortation about persevering. Or as we like to say a lot, Scott and I will hear us, indicative statements, that is truth factual statements, with imperative statements, that is commands. And he'll, he'll go back and forth um, from indicative to imperative. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Now follow hard after him. Let me tell you about Jesus. Now follow hard after him. And that's what you're going to see take place over and over and over again in this book. Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to move into a very special time. Story time with Drew, okay? So, well, I really actually, I was hoping to get like a rocking chair up here and maybe a pipe or something, I don't know. But actually, no, you don't do rocking chairs with pipes. That's not good for babies. But, um, you know, like a wingback chair and a pipe or, you know, a rocking chair, something cool like that, you know what I mean? But all, all I got is this stool here, so you're going to have to bear with me. But here's what I want you to do, seriously. I, I want you to kind of put your notes down for a second. And, and, and I, I want you to, to just kind of, actually, I'm going to have us, uh, let's see if I can, Anthony, can you get back there and dim those? I, we need some mood lighting here. <laughs> so there's a little switch, there's, there's like a slider on the side of those switches there. Like if you look at the two switches, there are little bitty mini sliders there. 
We got it, all right. Okay, bring the other one down a little bit. Mm-hmm, yep. All right. Welcome to Storytime with Drew. Um, okay, here's actually, this is what I want to do, okay? I, I, I want to, I want to read this to you, okay? This is, this is from a commentary by a guy named Donald Guthrie on, on or George Guthrie, I'm sorry, on, uh, on the book of Hebrews. And this is kind of his introduction. And what he does, and I think this is so vital, is tries, tries his best to put us in the position of these people and what they would have been experiencing and what they would have been feeling at that time and why this book would have been so necessary to them. So I want to read to you about a guy named Antonius. And, and this is probably very, very accurate in explaining what all the recipients, what these Jewish Christians would have been going through at the time um, when this book was written and why it becomes so relevant and important. All right, here we go. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second-story apartment, located in a slum on the slope of the Esquiline Hill in Rome. As rain pelted the age-worn wall outside, a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on the makeshift table. The room had turned dark with the coming of this storm, and Antonius lit a small oil lamp against the gloom. With the light, hungry roaches materialized, scampering to the dark safety of cracks in the wall. And in the apartment next door, a baby cried, and the infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. An urgent conversation rose and then faded as an unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs. Somewhere in the muddy street below, a unit of Roman soldiers marched past, driven under sharp orders from its commander. Antonius sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as gnats darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. Each time he turned the other cheek, it received a slap in kind, yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom, but since the expulsion of the Jews under the Emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed to various degrees by both Jews and pagans. Upon the expulsion, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings, and the seizure of their properties. That was almost 15 years ago now. Antonius had not been a part of the Christian church at that time, but had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own grandfather, ruler of the synagogue of Augustines, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of the Christians. When at 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man almost died, declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in tears and a tattered relationship. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself, and now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Footsteps in the hall, a scream in the night, meaningless events that nevertheless set Antonius's heart racing. He had been told the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than he expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, would vindicate his new covenant people. Didn't the scriptures, speaking of the Messiah, say that God had put all things in subjection under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately. 
and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief. Some, in their disillusionment, doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius Bar-David remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community, the joy of the festivals, and the solemn celebration of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors. And he missed members of his family. He watched them from a distance as they walked together to market by the Tiber River. Some of them still would not speak to him and passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. That was difficult. And today his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. To make matters worse, he was one of the poorer members of the church. When Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter. He now spent his days sorting rotten produce, sweeping the floor, swatting flies, and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves shopping for rich mistresses. He stooped so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meager food supply. Even rich men's slaves fared better. Earlier in the week, Gaius, the kitchen slave and equestrian who lived in the area, tossed him a handful of overripe figs, saying, Here, Christian, change your cannibalistic diet by taking a bit of good fruit. Laughter hung with the gnats in the air. To be poor and a Christian invited double portions of ridicule. Antonius had missed the weekly meal and worship for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat toward the little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him concerning his loss of perspective, yet in recent days he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius' bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius's curiosity was aroused, and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering the gathering room, he spoke greetings to several friends who all looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and friendly banter, but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. And when the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was a bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly from advancing age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and explained that he had talked the other leaders into allowing his group the first reading of the scroll. With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the situation that the people lived in. And these are the opening words of the letter, of the sermon that was preached to them in this most dire of circumstances. 
in just a couple minutes, we're going to come back and Scott is going to walk us through those first four words and our first four verses and the great level of meaning and significance that they will have for the rest of this year. You can take a break, um, grab uh, maybe a drink or something. Don't eat the, the hamburger cheesecake yet. Um, and, uh, and then we'll come back together in just a minute. I want to make one, one quick announcement. Um, listen up real quick. If you are attending Sunnybrook and, uh, and you are interested in finding out what it means to be a member at Sunnybrook, um, we're having a, a 101, Sunnybrook 101, this, this Sunday, right after the second service. Uh, how many of you in here have actually attended that, the 101? So, 10 or, 10 or 15 of you? Uh, uh, so, it, it, it's, a, it's a place to find out more about the church and, and how to connect and what it means to be a member of a church. And, what, and, and at that, you will find out kind of what we expect from you and what you can expect from, from us. Um, and so if you are wondering what it means to connect to a church and be, be part of the church and be a member and, and all that, then, then we would love for you to come. Um, and so I'm going to pass this around. If you're interested in coming, if you're planning on coming, um, this, this Sunday, 1232, uh, lunch is provided, but it's right after the second service. We'd love for you to come up. We're passing here. And I need it to go all the way around the whole place to here. Okay, let's see if we can do that. Um, so that's going to be passed around while, while we uh, finish up here. You know, Drew, Drew said, um, basically said that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people who had a deep question. And, and that question was, can I get to God without having to go to Jesus? Can I get to Yahweh another way? Because he's ruining my life. It's in, in, in some sense, my life is 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 ruined in some sense because of this, and and so many of them found joy in that, and many of them struggled in that at the same time, right? But but I doubt anybody in here is coming tonight with that same question, coming tonight with that question of, okay, I, I really want to get to God, but just I just I want to go about it maybe maybe through another way. I mean, maybe you are. Maybe you're asking a different question. I, I think you're. I think many of you in here are asking a similar question, which is, is Jesus really better? Like, like is he really worth it? Is he really worth my time? Is he really worth my life? Is he really worth me thinking and, and building my life around him? Like, is he really worth it? And and I want you to. I really want you to sit with that question. I want you to we want you to sit with it and wrestle with it throughout tonight because it's a it's a question worth asking. So I want to get into this. I'm going to do normally um, in in from after tonight and from here on out. Normally, what we'll do is for those of you who are new, we will walk through a text. The first person um, will kind of walk through the text verse by verse and describe what's going on and what the author wrote and why why he wrote it and. Um, and, and what the words mean, all that stuff, and then we'll take a break, and then someone will come back up here and, and give kind of the more of the bigger theological, applicational points to it. Um, but tonight, because of the introduction, um, I'm going to do a little bit of both here. I'm going to walk through the text, and I'm actually going to kind of point to some theological things, bigger applicational things as well. So that's what we're going to do. So if you have Hebrews 
1, starting at verse 1. Um, he says, verse 1 and 2, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, we fail to catch the, the enormity of, of that of that statement. Anytime you're studying the Bible, anytime you come to sit down and study a book, one of the things you want to look for is, is whenever an author builds in a contrast, contrasting ideas, okay? And he does that. Within the first verse of this, of this book, he starts with, a, with two contrasting ideas. What are they? What's he contrasting against each other? Okay, close, but that that's part of it. What? Then and now. So what's the then? The old what? Covenant? The old way that God communicated. God spoke, right? It says God spoke to our fathers and many times in many ways through, our, through the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke through his son. So I want you to, if you're taking notes, I think it's worth writing this out. Um, so we're going to put old L and new. Okay, so the, the, he's, he's contrasting God's revelation to us, God's communication to us. There's an old way, and then there's a, a new way. Um, the old way, so, and, and, and he kind of brings up four, four different things. So, the era in which he's describing of the old is in the past. Okay? He's referring to the time prior to the Messiah. He's referring to those, um, like, like the, the old covenant, those under the old covenant, the time before Jesus. Then he says, the, the, the contrast in the new is in the last days. Okay, so what, what he's... What he's not saying is, um, recently, like, here's how God spoke before. Recently, God spoke this way, but who knows? Maybe he'll speak a new way someday in the future. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, in these last and final days, God spoke through his son, right? So, um, Mormons actually believe that there was the... Old Covenant, there was the, 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 New, the New Testament, but then that became obsolete when, in, in the early 1900s, when Joseph Smith received a revelation in the woods all by himself, and so that is the revelation that we follow now. That's the new revelation. So, what, what the, the author of Hebrews is saying in 65 AD, 30 some years after Jesus died and was rose, rose again, is no... Like this, in the last days, boom, this is it. This is the, this is it. So, the next thing is the recipients. Who are the recipients? Okay. Forefathers or... And who are the recipients to the new way? Us. Who's us? Okay. When the author says us, who's he referring to? Jews. 
Okay, he's referring to his audience, right? Now, does that include us? Yes, in this case, it does. It certainly does. So, those of us who are under this new covenant of Jesus. So, forefathers under the old covenant, those of us under this new covenant of Jesus. Then the agents. Who are the agents of the old way? Okay, prophets. Or priests. Now, when he says prophets... He's not saying, he's not limiting, limiting it to um, Isaiah and Jeremiah and just the, the major and minor prophets that are listed. He, he's referring to Moses. He's referring to any time, anyone who wrote any of the old um, the, the Hebrew scriptures. God's revelation through the Old Testament. So in the new way is who? Who's the agent of the new way? He doesn't say actually Jesus. He says the Son, which is I know who you... That's who we know is Jesus. But it's interesting that he says the Son. Because he'll get into a little bit um, in, here in a second. He'll, he'll go quickly to describing the Son's unique relationship to the Father. Um, and then the way in which this agent does this, um, he says in the old, is many times in ways. Okay? Now, what's the... What would, what would, what's going to fit here? Okay? It's not actually in the text. It's kind of inferred. Sorry, some of you may move so you can all see it. Um, what did you say, Kelsey? Okay? One way. So one way. Like... like before God spoke in many ways, in many times, He, he spoke through things like um, His His commands, through through stories, through narrative, through uh, visions and dreams, through His mighty acts, through a still small voice. Right. So so God spoke in many times and in many ways to reveal Himself to His people. But in these last days, through through His Son, last and final days. The last and final way, he's spoken one way. What is that one way? It's Jesus, but what, what does he mean by that? What, like, how did he, what does he mean? He re, his, his revelation came through Jesus. I believe he's referring to all that Jesus was, his life, i.e., his, his person, his, his words, um, his actions. Uh, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of it was one way that God spoke and revealed himself, his last and final way. Now again, I, this whole time today, I've been feeling weight with this because I, I don't know if I can communicate how big he's going to describe Jesus. Like he has a a Hubble telescope Hubble telescope view of Jesus, and 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 quite frankly, we, we we're going to have a hard time grasping how big he's going to start um, and, and get into this. But but essentially, what he's saying is, Jesus is it. Jesus is a culmination of 
all of God's revelation. It's, it's, it's him. It's last and final. It's once and for all. And then he goes into these seven indicative statements. Okay, so I'm going to write, I'm going to write, I'm not going to write the statements down because you have the verses right there. I'm going to highlight them. And then I'm going to describe them. So I'll write seven different descriptions, seven different things. If you want to keep, take notes, you can. So right there in the middle of verse two, he says, after he mentions the son, he says, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Okay? So, let's start here. He's highlighting, he's emphasizing the son's unique and divine this one is relationship to the father his unique and divine relationship to the father the heir of all things what he's saying is that the royal inheritance of Christ was inaugurated through his life, death, and, and resurrection, but will ultimately at, at some point be consummated when he returns. So he's saying he, he, he inherited all things. His life, death, and resurrection earned him the spot of, of inheriting all things. So we have present reality that, that Christ is the heir of all things, but we all also have this future hope that Christ will one day consummate all things and, and, and inherit it all when it's fully restored. So you have him highlighting his unique and divine relationship. The next one is, the next one he says, through whom he also created the world. Now, notice it says he, in both, both, both of these, who's the he? Look back up at, at the verse. Um, verse 1 says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he, God, has spoken to us by his son. It says, whom he, God, appointed the heir of all things, appointed Jesus the heir of all things, through whom also he, God, created the world. So what he's saying is, well, let, me, let me give you this. He's, he's highlighting his unique and divine role. And no, they're not all going to start with R. Um, his unique and divine role. He's saying that the Father, this is throughout the Old Testament and even throughout the New, the Father is, 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 is um, the source of all creation. All, God, God spoke and things came into existence. Um, ex nihilo, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God spoke and there was something. But, but what, what the authors in the New Testament, including this, this author of Hebrews, is saying is that God chose to use Jesus as the agent of his created order. That God is the source. God, God took chaos and brought order, and God is the source of all that, but he chose to, to create it all through Jesus. He, through whom he created the world. Okay? Third one. That's the three, not two. He says, this is a big one. He is the radiance 
of the glory of God. Now, the he is who? Jesus. So now, now the he is switched. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint or representation of his nature. This, he is affirming his unique and divine nature. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Glory uh, is often used, we say this term a lot, but the glory of God is referring to the luminous manifestation of God's person and presence. Okay, Radiance, um, this particular word, radiance, is the only time used in the New Testament. It's the only time we have in, in the New Testament, in Greek, this word used, and it's, and it's in, in classical Greek and in our understanding, best understanding, it's describing the splendor or intense brightness and then, he's, then he uses the word imprint um, or, or, or representation. And the Greek word is character. Character. Any, anybody want to guess what, what word we get from that word? Character. <laughs> it's character. I'm not sure what you all said, but it's character. Uh, so we, uh, it, the, the, actually the root of this word is um, originally was used to describe, was an instrument that was used for engraving something, to, to engrave something was this instrument. That's kind of where the root of this came. And, and this word speaks more to his, to his form, his likeness, the image. So Jesus is this perfect picture of God. So get this, okay? What, what, what he's saying is to see Jesus is to see the bright, perfect manifestation of God's person and presence. To see Jesus is to see the bright, perfect manifestation of God's perfect um, person and presence. Here's what this means, and here's what this doesn't mean. What it means is Jesus is, is God, but they're not the same. See, there was this, this um, early church, uh, one of the early church first heresies was this idea of modalism. And it it's this idea that, that God is one, and sometimes he, reveals, sometimes he manifests himself as a father, sometimes he manifests himself as son, and sometimes he manifests himself as spirit. And you, you maybe have, um, well, there's, there's certain illustrations. Whenever we, try to, whenever we try to illustrate the Trinity, we always typically go towards heresy because there's no way to really il- illustrate. There's no illustration that really best captures the Trinity. But what, what the author is saying is that Jesus is God, but it's not the same. He is the, the, the exact representation. He, but it's not, it's not God the Father. It's Jesus, and He's God, and, he, and He's the exact same, but not the same. Different person, but the same. Clear as mud? Okay. Um, it's confusing. It's the Trinity. So. Four. He, and He upholds the universe... By the word of his power. This describing his unique and divine power. You can also put unique and divine word there as well. Um, it was the word of upholds, sustains, bears. It's not the picture of Atlas. Have you seen the picture of Atlas holding the world? Okay, not the picture. 
Um, it, it's not that. It's not Jesus the superhero who's, you know, well, we've got the whole world in his hands. That's a, that's a whole different thing. Um, that's not the picture. What, what this is, he is describing that Jesus carries forth, carries forward the, 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 the governing, created order that God set in place. That Jesus is who holds that up by the word of his power. Like, he, like God created, created things and set things into motion. And we are in this process of being redeemed and restored. And Jesus is who carries that forward. He governs that. He makes sure that happens. Um, in Genesis 1, it says, Yahweh speaks and creation comes into existence. And through the Son, the world is sustained by His powerful Word. This is Jesus. Fifth one is, it says, After making purification for sins... Another statement about what Jesus did. This one highlighting his um, unique and divine sacrifice. Unique and divine sacrifice on the cross. Um, This was a once and for all sacrifice. This is going to be a major theme of Hebrews. He's going to come back to this many times, especially towards the middle and the end of of Hebrews, he's going to get to this idea that um, that the priests, that many priests throughout hundreds and hundreds of years would go to before God, killing hundreds and thousands of, of bulls and goats and, and birds and all kinds of things, and, 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 and year after year, and bull and goat after bull and goat, they would have to make purification for sins. But Jesus comes as the perfect lamb and sacrifices once and for all, and it's and it's the perfect sacrifice. It's the only way that provides forgiveness of sins and access, and, and, and provides us access to God. This will be a major theme throughout Hebrews six. Then he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So this. Describing his unique and divine status. Unique and divine status at the right hand of God. The right hand, um, oftentimes throughout the, the Old Testament, is used to either represent superior power or ultimate honor. Um, his greatness, um, favor, was, was also attached to this idea. So the Son, the creator and sustainer, and heir of all things has been exalted to this to this exceptional position the status of authority and power he sits down now anytime throughout hebrews okay i want you to do this as we're studying i want you to underline anytime you see the, the term sits down or sat down or stands because there's oftentimes key ideas that it's being communicated. And so when in this particular case, when Jesus sits down, it is finished. Oftentimes when you, when you see um, Jesus standing before, it's like, it's on. Okay? Um, you see this picture in Revelation 
God sitting on the throne, all is good. You see Jesus standing, he's getting ready to judge the world. And so these, these themes are, are big, and I want you to keep, keep an eye out for them. And then lastly, says, this is kind of an interesting one. You, you would almost think he would end on with, with the sixth one, but he continues on because he's a communicator, and this, this, this particular one is going to lead right into the next section, which is where we'll be next week. It says, having become, a, a, a much, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This, describing his unique and divine superiority. Yeah. I'm going to figure out how to spell that word. Superiority to the angels. Um, angels were honored and feared, obviously, held high esteem. The author moves from that to from from describing his nature and his work to now describing this particular status of Jesus in these last two, of how he is superior. And like I said, he will go into this more and more. But this this word superior is kind of an interesting word. And this word actually is going to help us um, do a quick kind of give you an idea of where he's going throughout the rest of the book because this word is used over and over. And, and I want to give it to you. I want to give you the verses. Um, you can, I'm going to give you these references, and I'm going to write down what it's referring to. And you can write these down. Um, but this word superior, uh, 12 times in Hebrews, um, major theme. So in 1.4, we have... He's superior to angels. Okay? Superior is the idea. He's superior to angels. Um, in in uh, 6.9, he offers a superior salvation. Jesus does. In 7.7, he, get, he is a superior priest. In 7.19, he offers a superior hope. In 7.22, he offers a superior covenant. <coughs> covenant. So we have, he's superior to angels. He offers a superior salvation. He's a superior priest gives a superior hope and a superior covenant. In 8.6, there's a couple. You have, he, he gives, a, he, he has a superior ministry. And in 8.6, he also gives superior promises. In 9.23, he makes a superior sacrifice. In 10.34, he offers superior possessions. In 11.16, through him, see, country, land was, and was, a big, was a big deal. Through him, he offers a, a superior country, place, destination, if you will. In 11.16, 35, 
he gives a superior resurrection. And in 1140, lastly, um, he gives a superior privilege. Okay, so you can look those up and you can read the context and read, but this is where the author's going. Like, like Jesus is huge in Hebrews. And, and, and let me get back to this question that we come to and we wonder, is Jesus really better? And what the author is saying and what we're saying, and I'm going to write this as big as I can here. that Jesus is better. So I want to sit with this for a little bit. Why, why does this matter? Like, why, why, why his divine relationship, role, nature, power, sacrifice, status, superiority, like, why does it matter that we know all this about Jesus? Can't we just, can't we just love Jesus? Like, do we really have to study all this stuff? Can't we just, like, wake up and just love him? The reason we need to have a, a firm Christology, which is a theology of Christ, is because we need to know who we're dealing with here. And somehow, when, when, when Jesus, when we get to see glimpses of who Jesus is, all of a sudden, it starts to change something. It, 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 it evokes um, a response from us. We either have to give Him our life or if we believe this and we choose not to um, run for our life, I mean, Jesus is King and Lord. He is, he is supreme over everything. And, and so this is why we need to know who Jesus is. The book of Hebrews is going to tell us that only Jesus, it's only Jesus who can make purification for our sins. It's only Jesus who can provide a way to draw near to God. That it's only Jesus who can help us in our time of need. That it's only Jesus who can deliver us from death. He's conquered it. Sin and death, He's conquered. And when you put your faith and trust in Him, those aren't your issues anymore. They're not your problems anymore. He's taken them. It's only Jesus who can lead us to glory. It's only Jesus who can... I was expecting an amen from over here. Come on. Uh, it's, only, it's only Jesus who can... Who can help us? Let me say that again. It's only Jesus who can lead us to glory. Yeah. Thank you. There we go. It's only Jesus who can help us persevere to the end. That's another another major theme. It's only Jesus who's fit for our worship and our attention and our affection. So is Jesus better for you? Let me, let me say, um, he's better than, 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 than these three things that we tend to find our, our identity in. Um, what we do, what we have, and, and, and what others think of us. See, Jesus is better than, than what you're chasing after in a career. He's better than... Any amount of money you'll get from any career you'll have. 
he, he's better um, than, than, than how impressed people will be with what, what kind of job you have. He's better than that. Um, he's better than, than what, you, what you have. He's better than, than any, any fancy car you could have, or he's better than any sort of designer clothes or trendy clothes that you could wear. Um, he's better than all that. He, he's better, he, what he thinks of you is better than what anyone thinks of you. Because it's more accurate and true. And so, what he thinks of you is, is, is better than, than if, if others think you're a really, really fun person to be around. Life of the party. or It's better than if, if, if others think of you as really, really attractive or have really, really big muscles. Okay? It's a trap that we, these, these are things that we find ourselves getting trapped into, finding our identity in. And Jesus is better than all those things. He's better than any relationship, any one particular love, romantic relationship you'll seek after. He's better. In fact, he, in fact, chasing him will find, help you find um, peace and, and, um, and put that relationship in its proper place to be the greatest relationship you may ever have because he's better he's better than anything you could seek after in this world and like and like the the the, the parable in 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 the gospels when jesus describes this man who who goes into this field and he finds this treasure in this field this 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 nasty old piece of land that nobody wants and he goes and he sells everything he owns to buy this field because this treasure is so worth it. That's a person who understands who Jesus is, who understands kingdom. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is is better. Amen. So, let me pray. God, I can say those words and instantly be reminded of times and moments when I haven't lived that out. There is a gap, God, in my life between where I confess I want to be and where I actually am. And I don't think I'm alone in this, in this room. God, I thank you for those who are here who say, yes, I want to live as if you're better than everything else. And not get trapped up in the things of these the things of this world, and actually help me put the things of this world in their proper place, so that they can be used for your glory, God. And I think there are people in here. I praise you for that, for for those hearts that are here that desire that. And God, I help. I pray that you help them see where they are actually living, that you give them an accurate picture of of where they are, so they know where you may be calling them. And God, I ask for those who are in this room who, who are on the fence, who, who don't know whether or not they should give, give you their life. God, I pray that they are confronted with the truth about who you are. I thank you for this book of Hebrews that as I've been listening to it and several times that I've heard your word say, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. I pray that the people in this room would not harden their hearts towards you that they would come to trust you and give their life to you and I pray all this in Jesus name Amen